Hi, welcome to Project Kaleidoscope. My name is Aaron Adams. And I'm Megan McNaughton. And today's topic is erasure. What is erasure? Erasure can span from multiple different things, and the actual definition of it is to erase something. In terms of culture, this can be in terms of gradually removing various customs and traditions from a certain culture, assimilation into, in quotes, white culture, and gentrification, among many other things. There's so many layers to talk about here, so we are going to be focusing on just a few. Just to start us off, let's talk about gentrification. So the definition of gentrification that we have come to understand through multiple different forms of research is it is a process of a neighborhood change that includes economic change in a historically disadvantaged neighborhood by the means of real estate investment and new higher income residents moving in, as well as demographic change, not only in terms of income level, but also in terms of changes to the education level or racial makeup of the residents. So we see this a lot today in Los Angeles, and we've also seen it just throughout time, especially in the 1900s. I feel like you can argue that gentrification is colonialism in the modern day form, except, of course, on a much smaller scale. The violent aspect of it, I mean, in some cases, yes, but definitely not as violent as colonialism was, of course. There's no mass genocide, but there is a mass displacement of certain groups of people, especially in neighborhoods that are historically disadvantaged or historically redlined. So the problem of gentrification is not that it's just a Los Angeles thing. This is affecting other cities and it's across the United States. It's across the globe. And pretty much anyone who is a person of ethnic descent can be targeted because of their lower socioeconomic status. And it generally is people of whiteness who come in with money and just buy up land. It's a little crude to say it this way, but it's really what happens. It's not just housing, it's businesses. It's a lot of other things that kind of lead into this erasure culture. It's a way of taking away something that people have established. Absolutely. Just like a kind of baseline definition and truly just telling it how it is. This is not just a U.S. problem. This transcends to Latin American countries. This transcends to, if you guys saw Parasite, you can kind of see how this really happens in Asian countries as well. This isn't just a U.S. problem. And it does happen to communities who are disadvantaged because of socioeconomic status, which has come from decades upon centuries of historical oppression. And now they are being further oppressed by being basically pushed out of their communities. I feel like today in the world that we live in, there's this weird kind of stigma. And I feel like there's this really interesting perspective, especially given by the president of the United States currently, Mr. Donald Trump, who recently put out a tweet about the suburban dream, basically. That whole thing where he's like, I'm just going to remove it and appeal it, right? It's, it's really harsh, especially to people of color. Kind of alluding to the idea of how POC people can come into a white neighborhood and then make the property values lower in kind of a weird, sick, twisted way of reverse gentrification, if you will. Not to mention, he also claims that people of color also increase crime in the same white neighborhood. Perpetuating a stereotype that has existed throughout time, and again, erases the actual facts and erases the actual beings and personalities and traits of certain people, because again, not one size fits all. So to say, for example, that that would happen, it is another form of erasure, and to completely exclude people from living in a certain neighborhood solely based on the 
color of their skin or socioeconomic status, that is, again, erasure. One specific instance that I can truly think about, not necessarily in modern day, but we can also allude to the modern day example of the Rams Stadium as well. But the one really prominent example that I can think of that isn't talked about a lot would be the Chavez Ravine, which is now Dodger Stadium. For people who don't know, Chavez Ravine was actually a small community of people who lived there and it was a nice little valley community. An enclave, if you will. Yeah, and people had received a letter from the government saying, we're going to buy up your land, you are going to be relocated to somewhere nicer, and what ended up happening is people were basically either bought out, dragged out, and ultimately the land was just leveled and turned into Dodger Stadium. Something that people don't really realize is that there's a school that just had its roof removed, filled in, and it still lies under Dodger Stadium today. Dodger Stadium, for many, is really kind of a gravesite. It's a gravesite to their homes, to their ancestral homes. It's a gravesite to their memories and so many other things. What I feel like a lot of people don't really understand is when we're talking about people being removed from their homes, there is a lot of sentimental value there. It's not just the idea of something being a thing. Things have memories attached to them. I mean, there's obviously so much more to the Chavez Ravine story. I really recommend to everyone to go check that out, look into it, because there were so many legal scandals that happened over this. There was a lot of controversy within the California government. There was a lot of just pain and erasure that happened that was really a very interesting thing, I feel like, especially for that time, because I don't think a lot of people took into consideration what this would transcend to over time. It was all about the money. But of course, the project was in the beginning not to be about political or economic gain, but it ended up being that way. And many people were disenfranchised because of it. And I will also add that the housing complexes and housing units and place that they were promising to send them to and get them housing they were not actually made something that's a little bit controversial is saying like they took away one thing but they gave them dodger stadium and today especially los angeles before the angels of course was pretty much just a dodger town it was the unifying thing for latinos and angelinos and just the residents of los angeles to rally behind for having a baseball team. That was the whole argument for it, actually, was that they thought that this would unify every single person within the community and make it a place where everyone can come together and join. We see that a lot today. People do go to Dodger Stadium. It is a place of togetherness and being in one place and having a great time and making memories. But for a lot of people and people who know that history or have family who lived in Chavez Ravine, again, it's a gravesite. I mean, not even to mention the the incidents that we had with fans attacking each other. Those instances seem to be outliers for the whole thing. When it's kind of looked at at a community standpoint, while we can mourn the loss of a town or an enclave, it is really just the loss of the memories. It's the loss of land that people were born on, married on, lived, died. And to kind of give them this marker of here, we took this away, but here's this. It's not really justified for those people. And unfortunately, a lot of their voices have been left in the dust. We have way more people now sharing their voice for, 
I love Dodgers, Dodger, go blue. Like it's the Dodger sentiment kind of just erased that whole thing. And this has been going on since 1950. The whole thing is kind of just swept under the rug. There is no more mention of Chavez Ravine as like a place to live. It is now solely known as the home site for Dodger Stadium. If I were to ask any person on the street, many Angelinos would not really know the context and the historical context of Dodger Stadium and know that it actually was a place where many Latinx people lived. Uh, I believe there was only one black family that lived there. The Johnsons? The Johnsons. It was an ethnic community. It was a place where these people felt safe and it was ancestral homes. It's not really mentioned in modern society. No one really takes a big look at that, which is, again, just another really interesting concept in erasure, how we can take one thing and make it so big and so grand and it completely erases the honestly devastating past that it came from. You don't see Dodger Stadium talking about how it was once Chavez Ravine. It's like a lot of things when it comes to history for us Americans. We like to not look back at it so much. It's a little bit of nastiness that we want to just kind of want it to go away. And uh, you can wish all you want, but these things have their own voice. They say the dead can't speak, but really their voice is just as loud then as it is now. We have kind of perpetuated the society and this nature where we love to forget painful things. And I'm, I'm not disagreeing. I, you know, we saw suppressed things. It's fine. But there are things that we need to remember. I will, like, as a little tidbit, the whole reason why we say names in terms of the Black Lives Movement is mm-hmm. to remember these people and remember that they were not just bodies. They were not just numbers. They were not just a uh, statistic. And it's the same thing that needs to happen in terms of destroying this erasure culture and destroying how people now view certain things is if we kept these names alive, if we kept the history alive, then maybe things would be a little bit different and maybe we would have a perspective that's a little bit different. And this kind of leads into my whole next spiel, the U.S. education system in general. I'm talking K through 12. Maybe your college experience was a little bit different, but the U.S. education system very much loves to perpetuate white narratives. And I feel like right now, this is a really interesting conversation because on both sides of the political spectrum, there is an argument about erasure. And I know a lot of people who are on the left who are in agreement that the system that we have in place of education very much loves to perpetuate the white narrative. It very much loves to perpetuate ideals and whitewash history. But then on the other side, they feel like we actually don't talk about these white narratives in school and we're giving the history that actually deserves to be talked about a space to be talked about, which is, of course, not really true through my experience. But I also went to many different schools. I was in school in Arizona. I went to school in a Los Angeles town. I went to school in Sacramento. So my experience is a little different from others. As early as Christopher Columbus coming here and discovering, in quotes, America, to the fact that Everywhere in our textbooks, there seems to be this one way of painting the issue over what really happened. It's gotten to a point where different states also teach slightly differently, and we're not really sure of how this came to be for our generation because we're just growing up and taught this. But when we wake up to see, wait, why didn't they talk about this? This is really important. We kind of have to go back and say, well, who wrote these textbooks? Who allowed this? And it comes back to the point we made earlier is a lot of people see something painful in the past and want it to kind of just go away or they want to make it sound in a certain light that we're always going to be good. The white narrative is always putting the white voice above the other. 
And I feel like in the American education system, one of the big proponents of this is definitely perpetuating a white narrative. You will never see us lose in a U.S. history book. You will never see the actual pain and suffering that was inflicted onto others. That's just not a thing. Yeah, you go as early as back as Christopher Columbus. I mean, I don't know what you guys learned about Sacagawea, but when I was as early as I want to say third grade, because I was in a play, weirdly enough, we talked about Sacagawea and it was always kind of talked about in a light where she was this great woman and she faced no oppression and she helped Lewis and Clark go all the way across and she was fantastic and it was beautiful. I, I hate to break it to everyone if you don't know, but that's not what happened. There was a lot of oppression space. There was so much more. I mean, we can even talk about Pocahontas in terms of how media portrayals, especially Disney, wants to perpetuate this whole white narrative. Again, that's not what happened. To talk about the actual history of what happened here, it is heavy. It is extremely heavy. And it is something that people want to shy away from. Because why would we want to paint ourselves in the light where we are the oppressor? What, even though it's facts, it's completely facts. But why would we want to paint ourselves in that light when we can completely whitewash history and frame it into our narrative to make us seem like the, in quotes, good guys? Something that I uh, was watching recently from Comedy Central, which would be The Daily Show with Trevor Noah, they brought up a good point about American history, specifically upon the dismissal of negative events in history, is the U.S. kind of has this, I would say, just line of increasing on a graph where, okay, we had a revolution. Next thing you know, we freed the slaves. Next thing you know, we we won World War One and we World War Two, And like, they, it just kind of this up-curving arc. And to not give it enough credit that, yeah, there were a lot of backsliding. There was a lot of misinformation that was disseminated amongst people. And the thing is, is like, we look at our history books and that is the biggest place to spot these falsehoods. Just take June... 19th or Juneteenth. Honestly, up until maybe a year or two ago, I actually hadn't heard of this. I'm, and I feel almost ashamed that I didn't hear of it. And now that I have, it's like, oh my gosh, why wasn't this taught to us? Why wasn't this taught to us in a way that we could then learn from it? It was just completely erased. It was completely forgotten. And that's the kind of craziness that a lot of people don't realize is happening almost every day when we don't go back and look at the history. This is like one big example because I, I hate to say it, but Trump was like boasting that he made June 19th famous and he Not made it, jokes. No, but he made it famous for the wrong reasons. And just the audacity someone has to say that I made it famous? No. There has been media portrayals in the past, but that just didn't get enough traction. And then, of course, when he goes out put his rally on that day... He did put a rally in Tulsa, mind you, on that day. The amount of insensitivity here is, for one, amazing. But as well, I would also love to point out that, yes, everything you're saying is fantastic and but the whole underlying issue of it is, is this is what erasure culture is at its very core. A white man who has done virtually nothing to actually help race relations and actually help people of color yeah. who have these necessary things that they need to be done to say like, I, I did this. I made this a big thing. It, this is all me. To say this and to completely ignore the fact that there were actual people behind this who made this a thing, actual black people who are the important figures of this day is completely erasing the history of what happened there. He basically came out and said like, I made this a thing. You did not, sir. No, this thing has been there. And you just basically spit on it because not only are you not acknowledging the actual travesty that was happening there, 
you're completely making it a statement saying, I'm going to do whatever regardless of the date because I want it to. There's no excuse. Like, if you really wanted to support people of color, especially the black community, you wouldn't have a rally in Tulsa, Oklahoma on that day. I hate to say it. It's the truth, though. I mean, like, there's not enough people who know about these kind of issues. And this whole erasure culture just is a big problem because there's too many people who go on with our daily lives, me included, who there are so many things I didn't know about until they got brought up in light. It's just crazy to think about how many other things we may not know about that have been dealt the same way. And this is why I believe that the best education you can give yourself is to, one, not rely on the U.S. education system and to actually research and look into things yourself and to understand history from your own perspective and not the white narrative. So many things in history have been erased. We want to even talk about the civil rights movement. Mm -hmm. Can we talk about how many things were left out of the textbook during that? Because I swear to you, my civil rights education was so straight up. There was Rosa Parks. There was Martin Luther King, and he had a dream. And then racism was over. That was so straight up my education, which, of course, growing up and growing up in communities and having friends of many different backgrounds and ethnic backgrounds, it was really, for me, like, I could see that this was not true. For people who don't have that experience, people who grow up in predominantly white neighborhoods, people who are just ignorant, we'll just put it that way to not be too sugarcoaty of it, they look at this and they're like, oh, that's fantastic. So this means that racism hasn't existed in the United States since the 1960s, which is not true. Not true. But that's the way that the U.S. education system frames this. Framing is so important because they have the power to honestly influence us because we go to school for 12 years. We learn all these things and we think that we're taught everything that we need to know. But are we really taught everything we need to know? Absolutely not. And boom, bam, erasure culture. There are so many things that we all need to know that we don't know. So again, educate yourself, please. It's really important. Find out what you can learn more about because the U.S. education system has failed us all. Like, I understand that we're dealing with a tough time as it is right now, but the underlying problem that we have is that racism never really went away. People who are racist have been kind of shamed, I feel like, to be, like, in the closet. And I feel like Trump gave them back that voice to come out of the closet and be as rampant and as disgusting as they truly want to be. And I will, like, add, like, of course, we can say racism and we all have this, like, caricature image in our mind of what a racist is. But racism comes in many different levels. There's microaggressions and then there's a full-on T-R-U-M-P supporter. Yeah, and even right now with the coronavirus. Anti-Asian sentiment. Yeah, it's it's getting out of hand and we have to take it upon ourselves to make sure that we treat each other with respect, especially in a time where everyone is suffering. It's not meant to be decisive or dividing. It's meant to be, this should be a time where we actually all come together and we can finally understand each other. And this whole racial culture ties really heavily into each of these topics, even though it sounds like we're going to be getting off track. The whole point is, is there's an underlying cause here. It's just a problem to like not focus on these little issues as they pop up while each of these issues could be its own podcast we're gonna have to just make sure that at the end of the day we at least acknowledge it while we move forward absolutely because then what would we be taking part in 
erasure culture. Mm -hmm. We need to make sure that we give you guys the context. So yeah, I'm sorry if it does sound like we are kind of going off track, but I promise you everything has its purpose. Even going further on into that aspect, understanding each other's context, even in the smallest form, right? I mean, we have things like cultural appropriation, which can also be considered erasure. We have certain things like just having a lack of empathy for historical context altogether and completely unacknowledging certain things. Like I know many people who are like, oh, Mexican culture, Cinco de Mayo, Taco Tuesday. Like, okay, do you... That's, or, yeah. People who say like Cinco de Mayo is Mexican Independence Day. Like, do you Spoiler, even, it's not. <laughs> it's the fact that you're willing to just take something that was said at face value and just immediately slap the sticker on it and say, I'm done. I don't need to worry about it anymore. Cinco de Mayo, time to drink. Like <laughs> Cinco de Drinco, please like, don't. But no, there's yeah. this whole, I mean, I, for me personally, I can even argue the same thing about St. Patrick's Day. Mm-hmm. It is actually a saint's holiday in Irish culture, if you all didn't know. But many people have taken this into themselves too. Every St. Patrick's Day say, I'm Irish, let's get drunk, because Irish people are the white trash of the white people. Anyways... Kind of continue on with this. There are so many other forms of erasure that I feel like we can even touch on further. Like talking as simple as erasing a mural or whitewashing a mural. So murals in Los Angeles are very predominant, as they are in other cities, of course. In Los Angeles, especially because Los Angeles was native land and eventually the Spaniards and then eventually the U.S. There's a long colonial history happening in California and very specifically in Los Angeles. Murals have kind of presented himself as most art does in a political context or a social revolutionary context. Many murals today in Los Angeles, I mean, you can walk down Melrose Avenue and you see a lot of like cutesy Instagrammable murals. Mm-hmm. But there are so many other murals in Los Angeles that have a context that provide insight into the historical and or socioeconomic context or cultural context of many people. And this goes for a lot of lot of different ethnic groups. But I will particularly bring up Latinx groups in general because they are very prevalent in Los Angeles because, again, we were once a part of what is now Mexico. So one example of this issue that I can think of specifically in Los Angeles that really pertains to this issue is a mural that was in Highland Park and it was painted by John, otherwise known as Zender Estrada. And it was basically a mural of an Aztec warrior and he was flanked by two eagles. In 1992, he painted that. And since it has been whitewashed, and this is not the only example of this, of course, there are many murals, especially across Los Angeles, that have either been completely erased or whitewashed. And I mean, to whitewash a mural that was really specific to a movement, because in relation to this, John actually painted this to represent some of his viewpoints about the 1992 riots that happened in Los Angeles, because again, of police brutality, this is not a new issue. It's really disheartening and it's really kind of a slap in the face to have something that you created and something that you put out into the world that describes one your culture and two your viewpoint on something that is really important and just have that completely erased or completely whitewashed to depict a certain narrative that was not yours to begin with it's taking someone's voice it's taking away someone's right to their culture and again it's wrong It it was intentionally chosen to be forgotten is what you're getting at It was intentionally chosen to be forgotten. 
And I will quote an actual article about this mural and many others that was actually on The Guardian, and it was written by Andrew Gumbel. And as he put it, this is a result of dizzying change in one of the most rapidly gentrifying parts of LA, and it seemed a failure by the newcomers to understand the culture of the neighborhood that they were starting to call their own, end quote. So the way that he puts it, Again, this is another low form of gentrification. This is another form of erasure. I promise you guys, every single issue in this world ties together in one way or another. There are intersections at every single corner you can cross. This erasure of this culture comes again from a lack of understanding of the culture of the neighborhood that was already there to begin with. It is to completely take that and ignore it and to put something else there that they can think is, in quotes, more important or more white. To cover up a mural, I feel like is now, again, because this doesn't really get paid attention to, I feel like. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you know about murals in Los Angeles, you know historical context, maybe you know a little bit more. If you know about art, maybe you know a little bit more. But to a normal person walking down the street, and an average Angelino per se, this is not something that is really brought into the light in terms of gentrification. This didn't happen too long ago, but more of a modern in the day and age that we live in right now. Example of this is how people are trying to say that tearing down statues of slave owners or Confederate figures is in quotes erasure, which I would argue not necessarily. I mean, to people who hold those valuable, it is erasure. But because the image that they promote is so vile, it's almost like you can't get away with saying, I want to protect this thing because everyone knows that people who were on the Confederate side were fighting for slavery. They were fighting to suppress people of color. Not for not for state rights, guys. It was underlying thing. There was slavery. All of it was slavery. They were literally, like, they were traitors to the United States. They were okay with bringing down the United States. They wanted their rule to be enforced. And that came at the cost of taking down what we call the United States. Again, such an interesting sentiment because the argument now is that people who want to tear down these statues are for the demolishment or the fall of the United States of America. To, again, say that this is necessarily erasure, yeah, maybe to someone who holds these really wrong values in their hearts and souls, yeah, maybe that's erasure for you, but to people who have to understand and know the history and the generational trauma and the historical trauma of these events and have to look at that statue... Every day or every once in a while even. Like, that is traumatizing. You don't make a statue to say, hey, we need to remember this bloody history. Why do you think Germany has zero Nazi statues? Because they realize that, look, we're going to promote it in our history to say we have to get over this, we have to learn from this, but we're not going to go put fucking Hitler statues everywhere. We're not going to put iron crosses everywhere because we're not here to remind you that it happened like that. Statues are here to commemorate not to condemn. Exactly. And I feel like that is one of the biggest issues here and what people are failing to understand, especially in terms of this. Even in commemorating these people and giving them that that statue or that clout even is to like completely ignore and erase the, the actual atrocities that happened and to completely, again, just ignore history. Because we want to put such a high status and such a high symbol on these figures who really don't deserve this. Of course, we should learn about them. We should all know about what happened. That's not what I'm saying at all, mm -hmm. that we shouldn't learn, but maybe we shouldn't commemorate these people. I mean, yes, of course, Germany still does have concentration camps, 
But again, that is to really make sure that people understand the history and the actual things that happened there, not to glorify it. And I feel like what we do with statues in America, especially the statues of Confederate soldiers or slave owners or any other racist figure, is to glorify it, not to condemn it. To further this even more, I feel like there's this really interesting culture that I actually didn't know about until like, I want to say a month ago, where people love to get married on plantations. Um, I don't want to get into how I feel about that because there's a lot of emotions there. But there is one plantation, and I'm failing to remember where it is, so my apologies, but there is one plantation in the South that actually has created their plantation into being a historical museum in which they do not shy away from what the actual atrocities of, of slavery was, and they really bring that to light. I know a lot of people, a lot of white people are wildly offended when they go there, but you can't shy away from what actually happened. If you were to do that, that would be a racial culture. And to get married on a plantation is, again, ignoring the atrocities that actually happened there and inadvertently saying you're okay with that. I understand that people might look at the buildings and say they're beautiful. It's on this big plot of land. It's basically a mansion. You really have to look at what they were there for. They were there to perpetuate the the forced labor of people who were working for free and suffering harsh conditions and at the end of the day were basically looked at and treated as less than human. We all have the same brain, same heart, same blood. We are all human. And the fact that human rights were being violated so horrendously back in the day, people who get married on these plantations are pretty much just ignoring it. And it's one thing to say, oh, I want to get married at a pretty place. There are plenty of pretty places. This issue specifically is with the plantation and what it represents. Absolutely. And I, I'm going to clarify a point that you did make. Yes, we are all human. And it's really important to treat each other as though we are all human. But of course, we cannot ignore people's specific oppressions. And we cannot ignore the different difficulties that people do face mm -hmm. in everyday life that maybe as whoever you are, you might not face or maybe you do share a similar sort of oppression. It's fair to want to treat everyone as an equal. And I feel like you should want to treat everyone as your equal. However, I do want to mind you guys all of the fact that you should not try to ignore someone's history. You should not try to ignore someone's historical trauma, nor should you try to ignore someone's right to how they feel given their oppression that they have faced historically. And it's more important now more than ever to make sure that we don't accidentally forget about those things because we're so focused on right now getting people to be equal. We cannot forget the past. And that's why this whole movement, Black Lives Matter, going above and beyond to make sure that we're all defund the police even all these yeah. movements right now it's all it's all in the name of justice it's mm -hmm. not in the name of anything else and i feel like that is something that's getting really lost in translation yeah again it is all in the name of justice i want to move on just a little bit to another layer of erasure that i think is extremely important and something that's really prevalent and maybe something that a lot of people don't really recognize as erasure and that would be the losing of a mother tongue I have personally seen this firsthand within many of my different friends who speak languages varying from Korean to Spanish. So many different languages, right? I can also say firsthand for myself, I have mother tongues that I never learned. And the whole stigma I think behind a mother tongue is the fact that 
America at its heart is very much rooted in colonialism. America very much is rooted in oppression. There's this whole narrative that's been perpetuated, especially in the media today, loves to focus on the idea of American society being a single language spoken, and that would be English. However, of course, this doesn't take into consideration the fact that there are many people who are here who aren't, I'm not talking just immigrants, because I feel like this is the face of it, and people just assume anyone who speaks a different language is, in, in quotes, immigrant. Mm-hmm. But there's this whole narrative that you need to, if you are American, you need to speak English. Many people that I know specifically have assimilated into this white culture and have to, in turn, have to give up their mother tongue in order to be assimilated into that culture and to not be seen as an other. So for me specifically, what that means is, so my mother tongues are French, Gaelic, and Spanish. And I was unfortunately unable to learn a lot of these things. And I feel like this is a form of erasure that is a very interesting aspect because it doesn't necessarily come from a system. It does indirectly come from a system of oppression, but it comes inadvertently from generations. So for me, my grandmother spoke French and so did my great-grandmother, but those were never passed down. Same as my grandfather, who I unfortunately never had the pleasure of knowing, and neither did my mother, he spoke Spanish. And it's the same with my great-grandfather, he spoke Gaelic, and that never transcended down, and I never got to learn these different things. And why? Because, again, the whole assimilation into the white culture, well, of course, it's not seen as necessarily degrading or wrong to speak French or to speak Gaelic. Although, actually, I really don't know how Americans feel about people speaking Gaelic, because I've never actually seen that happen, but I would mm-hmm. assume it's okay, um, because it is a, in quotes, white language. I've never learned those languages, so. It's, it's kind of sad, honestly, to kind of think about a history of myself and to think that there was so much more to my cultural identity and so much more to me that I could have learned very specifically, but I never had the chance to learn because people in my family were more afraid of having that stigma surrounding them because of these things or just because I never had the chance to learn because people were removed from my life very early on. And that's a good point. For me personally as well, I've also lost mother tongues. For the most part, Spanish would be that main mother tongue. But for me, I was most affected when I was going into kindergarten. I definitely was learning English and Spanish simultaneously through my mother, and she taught me that so that I could be more well-rounded. But entering kindergarten, she had me stop speaking Spanish so that I wouldn't be labeled as slow or different, and I would have a better track in the education system. Because people who are only speaking other languages don't speak the same language, therefore they're put in a different class, And at the time, early, what, early 90s? Sure, there were courses for them, but it was still like, you're different, you're not going to be taught the same. And I look back at that going, I wish I had kept up with it, because I lost the Spanish, which is specifically from Spain, a long time ago. And sure, middle school, high school, college, I was learning most predominantly Spanish from Mexico. And that always came down to be a, well, I've, I've, lost my specific mother tongue, but I'm slowly relearning the other tongue. And I wonder now how different I could be if I was always growing up with the two languages, how I could communicate better. It's one of those things where my kids, I would want them to learn more than just English. 
because I feel like you'll actually go further, not just in an economic standpoint, but in a well-rounded mindset kind of standpoint. Absolutely. I feel like it gives you so much more insight to one, your own culture and two, maybe other cultures who share the same language, especially Spanish, because Spanish transcends into many different countries Mm -hmm. and many different cultures. In America, we have this really interesting society because other countries are really multilingual or even bilingual to kind of put more of a cap on it that they don't see speaking another language as being, I feel like in America, we see it as being low class, especially Spanish speakers. Mm-hmm. We see it as being something that is so wrong or something that is of the other. Because why? Because we don't understand it because we don't care to learn it ourselves. I I. I don't get it. But to be multilingual or even bilingual, that is to put a whole nother stance point on you because you have that other aspect and that other dimension of you. Because it's America, guys. We are what we love to call a melting pot, right? Or a salad bowl, whatever you prefer. But there are many different cultures here and many different things. And to not erase them, that includes speaking those languages. I feel like there's this way, I mean, like, I can even talk about how this also goes in terms of misogyny, how we as women very specifically internalize misogyny or misogynistic values, how some people kind of come to terms of internalizing this kind of values and internalizing erasure, whether they realize it or not. Well, I feel like we could go on about this because, of course, erasure is a very complex idea and it's a really, really complex and interesting concept just in general. We're going to have to cap it here today, guys. So just some kind of closing thoughts. When you are taking part in certain things, please be culturally mindful and please look out for different forms of erasure. I can argue that all of us take in some part of gentrification on whatever level that may be, whether we realize it or not. The underlying issue of the matter is, is that there are people being displaced and there are cultures being erased. So please just be mindful of that as you move forward in your everyday life and be good, be safe. As always, we hope that we opened up a conversation for you, one that you might not not necessarily have thought of and we'd love to hear what you have to say thank you for joining us in this episode of project kaleidoscope on erasure